The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. We'll be reading through verse 35, which is the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor, who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason, when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, And do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the letter of James. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 10 this morning. The word of our God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
One megalomaniac wants to rebuild the Soviet Union and all the people of the Ukraine are plunged into a devastating war. Already around 15,000 people have been killed, including around 3,500 civilians. Families have been torn apart. Millions of people have been displaced from their homes, and many of their homes and communities have been completely destroyed. That means even if the war were to end today, it'll be a long time before life gets back to where it was just a year ago. And of course, the consequences of this war spread far beyond the Ukraine. Thousands of miles away, famine devastates people in Somalia, the Sudan, eastern Nigeria, and Yemen. In fact, the cabinet, that is the senior government officials of Sri Lanka, have all resigned because the people are protesting the lack of food and the basic necessities of life, problems that have been caused largely by Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, and they are powerless to do anything about it. James is asking, what would lead a person to plunge so many people into such horrible misery? Now, we actually have a problem as Americans. It can be a little bit difficult for us to relate to what James is talking about so long as we're thinking about wars. One of the realities about being a great superpower is that at least the civilians in the United States have dwelt in security throughout my entire lifetime. As a civilian, we're very rarely impacted in a deep way by war unless someone we love has gone off to fight in that battle. And so we can wrongly imagine that peace is the normal course for humanity and that war is the aberration. But the reality is the other way around. War is the normal condition of humanity and peace is the aberration. Even our own nation has been at war virtually my entire lifetime. Uh, there are the obvious major conflicts like the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the first and the second Gulf War. Keeping in mind the second Gulf War, we've just got out of Afghanistan um, last year. But if you think about the Cold War and all the proxy wars that, that fit in there, uh, it turns out that even in my lifetime, there have only been a few years in a, that whole period that we can really say that America has really been at peace. Nevertheless, we still live in an extraordinary degree of security and peace so long as we're here in the United States. And this can dull us to what life has been like in Syria or Israel, or frankly in nearly all of South America and Africa throughout our lifetimes. The key thing to grasp this morning is that our experience of peace and security is the anomaly. Having your nation ravaged by war or coup attempts is the normal course of humanity. And if you doubt this at all, all I do is invite you just to open up your Bibles and look at the history of Israel from the time of Moses, that is from the Exodus, all the way up to the coming of Christ and ask yourself this question. When did they have peace? And there's only one period in that entire uh, time that is, during the 40-year reign of Solomon, Israel had peace. For the rest of it, 
can do the math in my head, maybe it's 97% of the time, they were at war and turmoil, either from without or civil wars from within. War and conflict are normal. Peace is unusual. Why should this be so? Why are people so regularly taking up arms against one another when the cost of such conflicts is so painfully high? Furthermore, the conflicts don't stop just because we put the guns down. All you have to do is turn on the evening news. I don't care what channel you pick. What you're going to hear about is conflicts. I mean, from different perspectives. But it's going to be people that are angry with each other, who are fighting with each other, who think that other people, other Americans actually normally, are their enemy. And each of us has been involved in numerous interpersonal conflicts, some of which have hurt, or even right now still hurt us quite deeply. And all of us has to de- have to deal with the conflicts that rage in our own minds and in our own hearts. The question is, why should this be so? And what ought we to do about it? Now, thankfully, James in this morning's passage does not only give us the diagnosis, he gives us the cure. We're going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, the presenting problem. Second, the root problem. And third, the radical cure. Let me give those to you again, just so you can see where James is taking us this morning. First, the presenting problem. Second, the root problem. And third, the radical cure. We begin naturally enough with the presenting problem in verses 1 and 2. James asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then he gives this answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. We so want to blame other people, don't we? I mean, we want to blame the politicians. Yeah, there's plenty of blame to give there. That's fine. But we want to blame them. We want to blame other people. We want to blame our environment or, frankly, anyone other than ourselves. But James locates the problem deep inside each and every one of us. We have unmet desires boiling up inside of us, and so we eventually do whatever we imagine is necessary in order to get what we want. That's the issue. We covet without getting what we long for, so we fight and quarrel with one another. Such fighting and quarreling, instead of giving us joy, leads to misery, And yet we keep doing it because our longings are not satisfied. That's what James is telling us. Now, interestingly enough, Buddhism recognizes this problem. I don't think of Buddhism primarily as a religion. It's really more of a philosophy of life. But Buddhism recognizes this problem of unmet desires. Uh, The Buddha once claimed that desire creates suffering. Now, on the surface, this makes sense. You feel pain when your desires are not satisfied. And so Buddhism has an answer. Get rid of the desires. You get rid of the desires, you get rid 
of the pain. The ancient Greek philosophers also recognized the problem of trying to find meaning in happiness simply by satisfying our desires or by putting down a list of achievements that we happen to do. Have you ever heard about the hedonist paradox? It's actually one of those things that's useful to keep in mind. It's a, it's a very nice bit of wisdom. The hedonist paradox goes like this. You want something and you don't get it, it leaves you frustrated. But if you do get it, instead of it leaving you satisfied, you quickly become bored with whatever you obtain. And there's real wisdom in that. That is the ordinary experience of us acquiring things or getting accomplishments. While we're pursuing them, we think that's going to bring us happiness. That's going to bring us meaning. And then we get there, and a little bit later, we've just moved on with life. And it didn't really fill the desires of our hearts. So maybe the Buddha was right. Desire creates suffering. So the best thing we can do is to get rid of our desires. What do you think? Well, the whole Bible shouts back at us, not so fast. See, you were created in the image of God. You were created in the image of God to have really significant lives, lives that would matter, lives that would make a difference both in this age and for the age to come. And that means you must have desires. To get rid of all your desires is to consign yourself to having no impact and to not reflecting God into this world. That is a terrible trade-off. If you get rid of desires, you may save yourself some emotional pain in this present life, but doing this is also going to rob your life of meaning and the joy that the living God wants you to have. So James tells us that desires in themselves are not the problem. Rather, we have two fundamental problems which both need to be dealt with. First, you do not have because you do not ask. And second, you ask and do not receive because you wrongly ask to spend it on your passions. Uh, We can restate the problem like this. First, we seek to have our good desires satisfied in the wrong way, and second, we have the wrong, that is, selfish desires. Let's unpack that together. I want to remind you of something, uh, something really beautiful that James says very early on in his letter. This is from chapter 1, verse 17. James writes, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Uh, That verse, in many ways, is the engine that drives this current passage in James chapter 4. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, if we don't really believe this, In particular, if instead of seeing the Lord as our father of lights and the giver of every perfect gift, and we we see him as though he's the, the one who, when he issues commands, he's actually hampering, hindering, that is, our happiness, 
Well, then we're not going to turn to him in prayer and ask him to give us fulfilling and satisfying life. He's not the source of it. If we misunderstand him. But if we understand that he is the father of lights from whom every good gift comes, from whom every perfect gift comes, the most natural thing in the world for us to do will be to turn to him and to ask for his favor and his blessing upon our lives. The math isn't all that complicated. So long as we seek the blessings which will make our lives rich and meaningful from those things, people, or institutions which cannot grant them, we're going to be unsatisfied. We're never going to receive them. As James tells us plainly, you do not have because you do not ask. And clearly he means here because you do not ask the Lord. Here's a very practical thing for you to do this afternoon. Very practical. Ask yourself this. What are the good things that you want for your life, yet you simply never ask the Lord for them? It's not that complicated, right? Think about your life, things that you want, you have your heart set on, that you actually don't pray for. And then ask yourself, why are you not praying for those things? Is it because you have a wrong view of God and you're not seeing him as the father of lights who loves you? Or is it because those things you actually know are not good things to ask for? So ask that question, and then consider what a good God you have, the Father of lights from whom every good gift comes, and ask him for those things that you know are in accordance with his will. Now, of course, James does give us a second diagnosis. He says, we do not receive because we ask out of selfish desires, simply because we want to indulge ourselves. Now, actually, these two problems, prayerlessness on the one hand and asking for the wrong things are intertwined with one another. Uh, Truth be told, we often catch ourselves realizing that's not really something we should be asking for. We can't ask for that in faith. I mean, suppose you're a second-string quarterback. Every second-string quarterback in the world wants the same thing. They want an opportunity to come into the game and somehow heroically lead the team to victory as a way of demonstrating their own significance. But, you know, you can't actually pray that the starting quarterback gets hurt, so you get into the game. And by the way, you can't pray this in your workplace either. You know, you you want to get promoted, but, you know, it's wrong to pray that your supervisor or some other person in a senior position, you know, that something bad happens to them or they mess up on their job. So everyone turns to you and you're the hero and you get promoted and get the opportunity you want. Right? So the problem may be that you're asking for things, you're not asking for things you should, but the problem very well may be that your heart, your desires are set on things where they shouldn't be set. Not only is it wrong to pray for those things, it's wrong to desire such things too. Seeing the Lord as the Father of lights and the giver of every perfect gift needs not only to reshape where we look, and it does need to do that, it needs to reshape where we look so that we look to him, but it also needs to reshape what we're looking for. It needs to reshape our desires and our hopes. Until we do this, we will have little wars and battles both in our hearts and in our relationships with other people. That's the presenting problem. 
our lives are filled with conflict because we are seeking security, significance, and joy in the wrong places and by the wrong means. Nevertheless, there is an even more foundational problem which underlies these symptoms. Look at verse 4 with me. And yes, verse 4 really is in the Bible. If this offends you, just realize the Holy Spirit inspired these words. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I say, whack! I mean, right between the eyes. I cannot even imagine writing a letter to people that I care about. Remember, James cares about these people. I cannot imagine writing a letter to people that I care about and saying, you adulterous people. That's what James says. More importantly, that's what God says. But I want you to realize there's actually a lot of encouragement in those words. The only way that James can describe your unfaithfulness to God as adultery is because the living God has entered into an intimate covenant relationship with you. He has taken the church to himself as his own bride, whom he loves. That's why our unfaithfulness is so serious, because what God has done for us is so amazing. The antithesis posed by this question is stark. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What exactly is friendship with the world? Or we might call it worldliness. What exactly is worldliness? I think it might be helpful for us to start with what worldliness is not. Worldliness is not about enjoying the created order, or caring about the created order. That is not worldliness. It is not about success in this life, whether you're getting promoted at work or awards for your athletic prowess or excellent grades in school. Worldliness is not about enjoying a nice meal at a fine restaurant. None of those things are worldly in themselves. Read the Bible. We discover that some of the greatest saints in all of history were people that God blessed with great wealth. I mean, that's not normal. Most of us are not going to be super wealthy, but Abraham, the father of the faithful, God blessed with extraordinary wealth. Job, who suffered immensely, the Lord blessed with extraordinary wealth both before his suffering and after it. And what did God expect them to do with that wealth? He expected them to enjoy it, to celebrate it with grateful and thankful hearts to God. Beloved, if God has blessed you, Don't act like the blessings are bad. (laughs) Rather, give thanks for them. Now, yes, by all means, you should be using your wealth in part to be a blessing to your neighbors. You should be using it to advance the kingdom of God. That's all true. But there's no reason to feel guilty over success in this world. Rather, you ought to feel grateful and enjoy these blessings with gratitude to your God. So what is worldliness? Worldliness is seeking your significance, your security, and your joy from anyone or anything 
other than the Lord. That's so important, I want to say that again. Worldliness is seeking your significance, your security, or your joy from anyone or anything other than the Lord. Let me give you an analogy here. And I want to recall our our good friend, or at least my good friend, the hedonist paradox. Suppose you set your heart on a beautiful ring. I mean, it's really beautiful. And you look forward to getting it one day. And you save up money. And you buy this ring. Beautiful ring. When does it give you joy? Well, it gives you joy perhaps right before you get it. I'm very close. Right? I'm thinking about getting it. And then at the moment that it's in your hands, it may give you a rush of joy. I have this beautiful work of art. And perhaps you can extend that joy for a little bit by showing it to your friends. But you know what? Pretty quickly, it's just going to become another item that you own. That's the hedonist paradox. It's not going to bring you lasting joy. But what if instead of it just being a beautiful ring, it's a wedding ring? And every time you look at the ring, you don't just go, it's a beautiful ring. It reminds you that God gave you a godly wife who loves you. God has given you someone to build your life together with, to be fruitful and productive and a blessing in this world. And God has called you to a sacred commitment that the two of you would love each other till death do you part. See, when you take the ring as an inanimate object and you link it back to a relationship, it may actually bring you joy for the rest of your life. That's precisely what it is with the gifts that God gives us too. If we try to enjoy those blessings in themselves, separate from God, we're going to find that many of the morsels he gives us turn bitter. But if we receive them from God as his love gifts to us, and we celebrate them in relationship to God, and we turn back to him with gratitude, then we can find joy and not disappointment in the things and achievements of this world. The solution is not to turn and despise God's gifts. The solution is to receive and enjoy the gifts as signs of the loving relationship that you have with God in Jesus Christ. Why are we tempted to seek friendship with the world instead? And let's be honest, we are, right? This is not an issue for some other people, you know, down in Alabama or something. The question is, why are we tempted to seek friendship with the world Instead of this, and the reason is simple. We believe the world's promises. That there are things we can get from the worldly system that will make us happy that we don't think we're going to get from God. And that's fundamentally wrong. It's simply not true. James is reminding us that the promises of the world are ultimately empty. Why? Because every good and perfect gift comes from above. Not most of them. All of them. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And since every good and perfect gift is from above, none of the blessings that we are ultimately seeking can come from below. As St. Augustine so beautifully put it, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest 
in thee. Beloved, this means that we need to stop looking for love in all the wrong places. Now, here's a bit of practical application. Uh, In my judgment, there are two big ways that we tend to get this wrong. The first is for young people. Um, There's a particular temptation when you're in your teenage years or your early 20s to imagine that somehow you can pull it off. That is, you know, my parents might not be able to pull this off, but I can be a friend both of the world and of God. Right? I don't need to make a choice. I think that's a distinct temptation that most of us have, particularly in our teenage or our slightly older years throughout our 20s. It's easy for young people to imagine that their parents are just being sticks in the mud and that we're being far too negative about worldliness and that they have found a better way. Now, the truth be told, sometimes those of us who are older can be too negative about the surrounding culture and we need to listen to you young people when you tell us it's not that bad. You're overreacting. That's not what James is talking about. James is not talking about the surrounding culture. He's talking about where you're putting your hope. Are you putting your hope for significance, for security, for joy in promises that come from anything other than God? That's what James is talking about. Let let me be really concrete here. If you imagine that you're going to find significance, belonging, and joy because your peer group accepts you, And so you affirm them in their sin in the hopes that they will in turn affirm you. That's worldliness. That's making yourself a friend of the world. And beloved James says that's making yourself an enemy of God. If you put getting superior grades or winning athletic awards above loving your neighbor, above honoring your parents, above worshiping the Lord... That's worldliness. That is making yourself a friend of the world and an enemy of God. Now, the young people in this church are all really smart. You all get what I'm saying. What I want you to hear particularly from this passage is this. It is not your parents. It is not your grandparents. It is not even your old pastor who's telling you that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Beloved, it is the Apostle James inspired by the Holy Spirit. The living God is telling you that you must make this choice between friendship with the world and friendship with him. And he's doing that for your own good. The promises of this world are all ultimately empty, while the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, what about a special temptation for us older folk? Uh, This is one of those places where actually it takes a while to really fall into this temptation. But I think this is really common. We make compromises with worldliness. And we've made them long enough that we've grown used to them and we just think that's the normal course of life. Beloved, you need to ask yourself that. I want to encourage you this afternoon when you go home... Um, Not to go through a massive work of introspection in your life. That probably won't do you any good. It might do you a fair bit of harm. But simply ask the Lord this. Would you show me where I'm hoping in things other than you for my significance, 
for my security and my joy. And then ask your Father, who is the giver of every good gift, to change your heart so that your heart will find its rest in him and in him alone. That's what the rest of the passage is about. Uh, We've looked at the presenting problem of the conflict, both in our relationships and in our hearts. We have looked at the more foundational problem, which is our seeking our significance, our security, and our joy from anything other than the Lord. In the rest of this morning's passage, James presents the Lord's radical solution to our radical problem. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, as I pointed out, the language of verse 4 is jarring. James has said, you adulterous people. But that contains the good news that God has chosen to marry us, to enter into this intimate, covenant relationship with us. As a Lutheran scholar, Lenski puts it, God made his spirit to dwell in us so that the spirit may make and keep us true friends of his. That spirit yearns jealously and is grieved when we become friends of the world and thus begin to become enemies of God. As a faithful husband, the Lord is not content to let us pour out our affections upon other lovers. And please notice the Lord does not go away and sulk. What he does instead is he gives more grace. It is the offended party. It is our God who works to bring about reconciliation. He takes the initiative to lead us to genuine repentance. He gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Beloved, God's grace is greater than your sin. The Lord's grace is sufficient to turn us back in genuine repentance, where we over and over again discover a faithful and sufficient Savior in Jesus Christ. See, repentance is not about going and cleaning your life up so you can come back to God and present yourself as really a good catch. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is about being turned back from going our own way to embracing the Lord himself with a genuine desire that by his grace you will now live his way and for his glory. As Erasmus so beautifully put it, When the Lord calls us to repent, what he is saying is this, be turned to me, right? Not go clean yourself up, but come back to me. James is making clear that the Lord is giving you the grace to do that very thing. Now, I do want to say that humility is not something you add to faith. As though you have faith, but boy, you better add humility to it. Rather, humility is simply an expression of true faith. If you believe that God is the true creator of the universe, and he's the giver of every gift, then you come to him on bended knee, and you worship him, and you receive from him the blessings from his hand. Humility is simply an expression of genuine faith. 
course, genuine repentance does lead to a different way of living, to a renewed way of life. After all, God's plan is not just that you'd be rescued from the punishment of hell. God's plan, which he has predestined you to, is that you would be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to simply keep bad things from happening to you. He's trying to transform you. He is transforming you to become what he's always desired, that you would reflect him into this world. Do you remember the Shorter Catechism's definition of repentance? I think it's very helpful. It goes like this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, with full purpose of, and endeavor after, new obedience. That's an excellent definition. Repentance is fundamentally about being turned back to God. But this also means turning away from friendship with the world. This also means seeking to live in a way that is consistent with the faith that we profess. Now James spells this out in a series of commands. It's actually quite remarkable. In three verses he has ten imperatives. Right? James spells this out in a series of commands. But I think if you go and take these as individual commands, you could very easily miss the point that James is getting at. He's not saying, now here's a whole bunch of hurdles that you need to jump over in order to satisfy God's desire for your life. Rather, he's saying, this is the way God is calling you to live because this is the type of life that God blesses. In fact, what James is doing, and I hope you'll hear this, is he's echoing words from the Sermon on the Mount. He does that a lot, by the way, throughout his letter. In particular, he's echoing words and thoughts from the Beatitudes. And he's saying, put yourself, when you humble yourself, back into that place of the type of life that Almighty God has promised to bless. Listen and see if you can hear the echo of Christ's words in verses 7 through 9. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, I'm not going to explain all of that. It would take us too much time to do that in detail. I want to give you a few pointers, though, on how you can connect these words back to the Beatitudes, because that's what James is fundamentally trying to do. I think the connection to the Beatitudes in the last verse is obvious. Uh, James is not calling you to walk around in sackcloth, throwing ashes on your head all day and morning about how miserable your life is. That is not what he's doing. Rather, he's pointing out that Christians ought to be sorrowful over how our remaining sin grieves the Holy Spirit and how this demonstrates our unfaithfulness to the husband and the Lord of the church. But James is also reminding us of this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The connection between the Sermon on the Mount and the command from James that we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts may not be quite as immediately obvious to all of you. 
But do remember that Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In fact, the apparently harsh title that James uses here, double-minded, by the way, if you ever think my sermons are hard, please remember, James here calls you adulterous people and double-minded. But double-minded is not intended as being a mean, hard, let-me-beat-you-up kind of title. Rather, he's drawing attention to that beatitude about the pure in heart. As Kierkegaard points out, biblically speaking, to be pure of heart is to desire one thing. That is, to be devoted to the Lord and the Lord alone. It's the opposite of being double-minded, putting your hope on one thing and another hope on the world. See, they go together. By the way, that's one of the reasons why David is called a man after God's own heart, even though he does some pretty egregious public sins. See, unlike Saul and unlike Solomon after him, for David, Yahweh was his only God. David had unwavering devotion to Yahweh in the sense that he didn't worship anyone else, whereas both Saul and Solomon were idolaters, as, so, as were so many kings after him. And therefore, David is called a man after God's own heart, a man of a pure heart, because it was focusing its hope on the Lord and the Lord alone. Well, you can look up Psalm 24, and you'll see that cleansing our hands has to do with our outward deeds and the fact that we're told there that, or actually we're asked there, who shall ascend the mount of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, that is, good deeds, your hands, pure heart, how you think and believe and trust within you. Now, in the first place, of course, that refers to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only person with completely clean hands and a completely pure heart. But as James keeps reminding us, you've been predestined to be conformed into his likeness, and you are being called to pursue that yourself. Therefore, instead of seeking to achieve significant security and joy through worldly means and in our own power, James gives us a command. I want to say this is a command that's worth committing to memory as he ends this passage. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's good stuff, right? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. But here's the thing. Humility is not an achievement. You cannot go out this week and say, here's what I'm going to do to have a humbler heart and focus inside yourself. The way that we come to genuine humility is by looking outside of ourselves to the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. It is apprehending the mercy of God in Christ that leads us to genuine humility and actually becoming like Jesus himself. As the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was by very nature God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, beloved, by God's grace, have this mind in you. Amen.